Wow, another great week. <laughs> so before I dive in and just start gushing, and I can tell you, I have pages and pages and pages of stuff to try to get through. We're not going to get through it all, obviously. We're going to do, we'll, we'll t try to take a bite out of this elephant that we have. Um, one of the things I w was curious about, even though as I was doing my own homework time, is how are you all perceiving what you're looking at? What are you taking from the things that you've been looking at at this point? Can you share anything that you particularly found insightful or challenging or perplexing? Yes, Glenn. Yes, absolutely. True. True. Yes. Um, you know, when you consider the wisdom to be able to discern and to, um, well, his gift was to be able to discern good from evil right, so that he could judge over the people because what his role was as a leader of that nation was to make some of those really big, he was almost like the judicial court, you know, that you go to for the really big things, that the difficult things that couldn't be handled by, the, by others in their midst, that they would come to him. And so God gave him that kind of wisdom to be able to discern good and evil and also ha even cleverness to be able to figure out how to draw the truth out, like we saw with the, the two women and the baby, right? Uh, I mean, that was quite stellar, if you think about what happened there. And it was really a very good um, example that this particular author chose to put in there right after God gave Solomon wisdom. He showed us an example of the, the cleverness and the, and the brilliance, really, of how he was able to draw the truth out. So that's a, that's a truth. But then there's also the other kind of wisdom that, that what we're seeing right now um, with Solomon that's going on, we're, we're seeing him having been established, having done some of these other major things. Now he's uh, going about doing what? What's he been doing that you saw this week in your work? What kinds of things is he working on? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So if you think about it, then what happened is Solomon was given a gift that he understood. We, we talked about this a few weeks back, that it was bestowed upon him because of the covenant that was made through his father. He was the son that then God chose to raise up to 
fulfill his promises to David that he would have a son upon the throne if he followed after God, right? It, not if the son followed, but if David would follow, God would give him a son to sit on the front throne. So God did that. But when you look at Solomon's life then, as he began to amass things and began to do these works, did we see, do we see in Solomon um, kind of a mix of wisdom for this nation that was God's nation. And one of the things he, Solomon did say was he understood the, the um, awesome and, um, yeah, well, he saw this, this huge responsibility before God to lead God's people. So when God raises up a leader, whoever he is of whatever nation he is, and he, and he puts him in position of authority over others, then he has a responsibility, or at least he should understand that he has a responsibility, that whatsoever you do, you do it as unto the Lord, for it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving, right? That's a New Testament verse. I'm going to totally take you to the New Testament on that. But, yes. James, yes. So you can spend it on your pleasures. Yes. Now, wow. God put Solomon in his position. Mm -hmm. Solomon asked for the wisdom so that he could do a good job in his position. Right. He was asking to accomplish the will of God. Right, right, which was all good, and God honored that. Okay. Yes. Then afterward, he slips away from it. He's doing his own thing. And it's like David being a man after God's own heart, but also slipping away and doing his own thing, too. Mm -hmm. uh, like father, like son. And I don't know why I thought at one time that everybody in the Old Testament was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, are we learning that they're not. You know, that kind of brings up a good question. Why do you think God is showing us the frailties of his chosen leaders? These people that, quite honestly, if you talk to the average man on the street and ask them what you understood about Solomon, what do you think people would say? Wise. He was wise, right? So, and because he's wise, what is the kind of the domino in your mind to that thought? That, yes, that everything he did was good and right. And that is, is that a fallacy for us to fall into that? When, especially as Bible students, when we go into the Word of God and we start with a presupposition, would you call that a presupposition? Oh, Solomon's wise. God gave him that gift. Therefore, God has a total uh, sovereign uh, anointing and power to make Solomon do every single thing right and good, correct? That's kind of where a lot of people go because it, I, I don't know about you, but I've had conversations with people where you kind of try to slip in a little tidbit of information to them about the fact that, yes, but Solomon really messed up in this area or that area, and then people just bristle. They're like, you're being sacrilegious or something, you know, you're, 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 you're speaking from Satan because you're speaking against God's, you know, man who was given this great wisdom. And so it's very interesting to me how we can actually fall victim, I think, to um, having these, pre because we have presuppositions, then we go in with an expectation of seeing something. Have you found that in the last 
now five weeks that you have actually had to do, make a correction to your understanding so that you view the text correctly and look for clues also for good interpretation? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like you let that little crack open in the door. Right. Thing you know, we talked about the week before the chariots, the horses, the gold, the silver. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of Kings, this last study, he had did all of that. Mm -hmm. And he was still, and it also talks about. It almost God. makes you wonder if God didn't write Deuteronomy 17. Uh, with Solomon in mind, <laughs> yeah, you know. And then also, he made alliances with people, and then he also let the, the not just him, but even before him, they didn't utterly destroy those nations that God had called them. And then they had, then he used them as slaves, yes, labor. And I mean, it was just like a domino effect. It seemed like it just kept. And, and isn't Solomon the one with the? Yeah, right, exactly. Right. I can't even perceive that in my mind. That's yes. a lot of women. I know. Yes, yes. And it all it tells you also that Right. Right. We Right, we we looked. Let's go look at that real quickly while we're on that subject. Go to Deuteronomy 7, because we may not get back to it as thoroughly as I'd like to later, but you all looked at Deuteronomy 7 as well, and I have taken you there on numerous occasions for a variety of things, but what did you learn in Deuteronomy 7 about on the, on the same wavelength here that Don was just speaking about? What had God, Deuteronomy 7 was written when and to whom? Moses wrote it, and when was it written? Who was it written for then? If, if it was Moses, the Jews, as they were about to go into the, the land, but the promised land. And what kind of things did God lay down for them in this passage of seven, chapter 7? Okay, number one, when you get on the land, you are to utterly, huh? That's right. Utterly destroy them was the first one, right? Go in there and completely wipe them. Why do you think God did that? Is that a harshness that you find difficult to, to kind of... Right. Now, where is that found? Genesis 15, right. That's exactly right. When he actually made the original covenant with Abraham, he said to them, for 400 years you will be in captivity because the fullness of the, of the Gentiles has not come to its measure, as you were saying. So when the fullness of the Amorite sin had come to its place, then God was going to send them in. And what does that tell you? What, is, what does that mean to you when God says, well, when the fullness of their sin is... Okay. Okay, okay. Timing is important, although that's a whole other subject, but yes, yes, absolutely. 
Yes, for the okay, that's a good point. It brings the idea that God said for 400 years. So then, for 400 years, what was God doing? He was reaching out to them. He was, and and we know that with Abraham, he met a man named Melchizedek. Correct, as he was traversing the land and and viewing it as God had told him to do, he met this man who was uh, what? Who was Melchizedek? Priest of God Most High. So there were people on the land who were worshiping God even before Abraham got there. Even before Israel became a nation. Even before Judaism, as we call it today, came into being. There were people on the land worshiping Yahweh. Right? Okay, so this Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, spoke to Abraham, and we know that storyline because we, we did that not long ago. So what you know then is during those days then, Abraham was told, you are going to possess this land, it's going to be yours and your descendants after you, but not until the fullness of the Amorites has come. So he was waiting for a measure of time. So yeah, the grace of God, huge, huge picture there of the grace of God and the patience of God on that. So what has happened then through those 400 years with all these men like Melchizedek? They went away. They went away. They, it, it came to a place where the people of the land were doing what? Stopping up their ears, close, covering their eyes, refusing to see truth and refusing the, the, the light of God's word. Right, And so when that occurred, when that came to its full measure, then God says, okay, now Israel, go in and do what? Utterly destroy. So that was the first one. Then the second one was, as Don brought up, was then that when they got into the land and as they were doing this work, which would be progressive and time-consuming, it wasn't something that was going to happen in, a, in an instant. It would take time. So in fact, God gave a prophecy about that. Do you guys remember that? That he's... Slowly, that's right. So that that so that they would, hmm? No, absolutely. Well, yes, but just the, they didn't want the wild beasts to take over and for and for the land to go wild, and they wanted them to be able to go into the, some of the existing cities and actually just move in, basically, right? But so this, then the next thing is then if that was going to be the case, that it was going to be a progressive thing and it would take a little bit of time, how much time has passed at this point with Solomon? Where are we in things? Okay, well, we know David was 20 years, and who was before David? Saul. And then who was before Saul? The judges. How many years were the judges? Several hundred, right? Like 400 maybe? Okay, I think it was like 400. I might be wrong, so don't quote me on that one because I didn't actually look it up. But it just came, you know, sometimes I talk off the cuff and then wish I hadn't. <laughs> but anyway, we know it was a long period of time, several hundred years with the judges. And so we had Joshua coming in. We had the, the period of uh, and that period of time. We had the judges period of time. We had Saul. Then we had uh, David. And now we're at Psalmist. So they've been on the land how long? Quite a few hundred years, right? So this progressive work of clearing the land, what do you think? Should have been a pretty much a done deal at this point? Yeah, it, and it mostly was because we saw that with David then, as he, pa as he passed, God gave the kingdom to Solomon. One of the things he gave it to Solomon uh, and uh, chose Solomon to build his temple was why? 
he didn't he was not a man of war like his father had been his father had come in and had to be a man of war clearing the land and taking possession of things yet it very interesting to me that all these hundreds of years have gone by and he was still having to war and and take the land that had not yet been taken uh, it kind of makes me beckon back to earlier in David's life when he slayed Goliath remember who was a Philistine and who was still on the land in those days. And there was actually nations that they were fighting, little, you know, smaller nations, but they were still fighting these on the land. So it kind of gives you some perspective on this. But then you think about Solomon, then as God raised him up, put him into a position of power, he knows the right thing to do. And he also has these instructions before him that has told him, every single day you are to write down the words of God, you're to basically to write your own transcript of the word of God, so that what? So you'll know what is right and wrong. Make a, pers make a personal application for us. Aha! Uh -huh. Do you think that teaches that principle, that you and I also are called to Meditate on the word of God day and night, that thou mayest to know what is written therein, that thou shalt be faithful to do it. Yeah. So you and I have the same calling, by the way, as, as uh, David and Saul before him, and at this point now Solomon. We have the same call in our life. Now, they were called for a position as a king over a land and a nation, but you've been called also, Right? And for any of us that have been around very long, we've done the Esther studies, called for such a time as this, right? We each have our own kind of calling in life, and we are called to represent God in the world, to do the will of God, right? To be obedient to God, to love God and worship him ourselves personally, and to draw others in. Now, how can we do that if we do not stay in the word of God? How many of you noticed that as we were looking in chapter 9 and, and also in the Second Chronicles uh, 7 and 8 that, that we're, we're trudging along with Solomon and all his building programs and then there's one little verse that says, but Solomon did what concerning worship? Three times a year. He went to the feasts and performed, but it's one tiny verse. Where in there does it say that he stayed in the Word of God on a regular basis, that every day he meditated on it as he was? But is there any expounding on that? But, so what do we see Solomon did do? Well, for one thing, we also saw back in 1 Kings 3, or two, two, you know, 3, that he had been worshiping at the high places, right? Okay. Right? Right. Then he was finished. That seems like it. Right. And now, if you had to draw an app, a, a, a maybe a comparison in the life of a New Testament church-going person, what, what would, how would you equate? Is there an equation that you can make? Yes. There you go. Exactly, Michelle. That's exactly right. This is the guy that shows up and, f and does the legalistic ritual uh, 
what they would consider requirements. You know, they, they, maybe it could even go as far as not just the holidays, although in Solomon's case, it sure seems like that. He only showed up for those three uh, ceremonies three times a year. That's all it says. doesn't say he did the daily sacrifices, but that he just came and did. Now, maybe there's another verse somewhere else that does, but in what we're looking at this week, we're seeing him do just those three times a year. And it's interesting to me that this author wrote that in that way in here in the midst of showing us all these amazing accomplishments he's making as a as a leader of a nation right so on the one hand he knows what to do uh, and then somewhere in the middle he does just enough to you know check the boxes yes but then on the other hand, there were some problems, right? Now, you don't really see the problems unless you're doing inductive study. Because it would be very easy to read through everything that we've read on that superficial level without knowing what we know, because we've done this so many times, laying the historical context of what was expected, such as Deuteronomy 7, knowing what God had told them to do, and then comparing that to what we see Solomon doing, right? Wow, the insights there are like, we could, we could go on and on and on. And poor Solomon, I mean, I, poor Solomon, I mean, he, it was his choice. But I just think, uh, for me, it has totally changed my opinion you know about who this man really was not that not that it's my place to judge um actually I think Carrie and I had lunch one day and we talked about this and and early on I was seeing it right away that there was a problem with this guy this is not good and I'm going you know is this guy even even saved does he really even know the Lord and and you know true it's not our place to make a judgment in that regard however on the other hand Jesus does tell us you will know a tree by its fruit right and I do think that there are very clear statements that God makes in his word where he he kind of clues us in as to whether a person really knows him or doesn't by their what behavior. God's word teaches us that the one who loves me, remember there's a verse early on in chapter 3 of, of uh, 1 Kings that said he, he loved the Lord and then what was the next word? Accept. And that was, that was I think a pivotal moment in the uh, unfolding of insight about Solomon that indicates that in other words he was not anti-God right? He wasn't an enemy of God. On the superficial level, he was doing a lot of the right things. He was honoring his father. He was, um, he did build this magnificent temple. What a beautiful testimony that is to his life. He left a couple of real powerful positives in the world that had generations of effect, right? For, for the people and for God's plan. So God used him in a mighty way. But on the other hand, there is this, this dark part of this man's life that you see seeping through every now and then. So we're going to kind of look at that today. We're going to do it by looking at some of the geography. Um, I think it's interesting that Deuteronomy, after it tells you, Utterly clear away all the nations before you and do not intermarry with them. Tear down their altars, right? Then that's the first six verses. But then from 7 all the way to 9, uh, 20 is all about you must keep my word. 
You must obey my commandments. And you're only going to be able to do that if what? If you know them. There is the reason we study the word of God, right? You have to know them to be able to keep them. All right. Um, let's start by just simply going. Let's, I, I think what I want to do is do, um, let's do 1 Kings 9 as our foundation. We're going to use it as our major subject of conversation today. We're going to go through and do our paragraphs on it and kind of progressively go through this. And then what I want to do also then is look at the geography. How many of you looked up these cities and their locations and looked on a map to see where they were? And so did you do, some of you all do that? I have pages of, of looking at all of this stuff because this is where you come to find out where Solomon was actually messing up right? A little bit of, of insight is given to you just by looking at these. So we're going to talk about those geographical um, observations and what kind of insight they give to us. Okay, so let's start with 1 Kings 9. And we see on the whole, what do we see going on in 1 Kings 9? We need a theme, a verse, so that we understand kind of the major messages that we're seeing in here. There are really two primary thoughts going on, Correct. What are the two things that you see that are big events? Okay, that God appears to Solomon. That's the first big one. And then what is the second half? Okay, well, yeah, you could interpret it that way once you come to your conclusion. Okay, very good, Carrie. You get an A-plus for observation and, and deductive reasoning. But tell me, when it says, and he didn't heed the warning, what was, what was told to us in those verses that he was doing what? What was he doing in those verses? In the last half of First Kings 9. Well, I know, but what was he doing? They, okay. Building up the kingdom. He was building cities. And, and, and how many, tell me this, just by an observation, because this is one of your observation skills as a student. When you did your key marking, correct? When you did your geographical mark, for me, I underline, double underline with green, okay? So how many double underlined greens do you have? In your, in your thing, in, starting from about, actually, verse 9, but from 10 all the way to the end. Would you say that's the dominant key subject for you? So in that, then, what is the major subject going to be about? The geographical locations, some quality about those geographical locations. And so tell me, what was he doing at all of those geographical places? He was doing what? Building and fortifying and securing and procuring, right? He, so he was building up his kingdom. So although the conclusion, Carrie, was absolutely correct, for titling, I would stick with what you see and then build on that later. Maybe make a subnote in your column off to the side or something. Because here's the problem. If you, if you title something with your total conclusion, you know, uh, then the problem is later when you go in there, it's harder to look for anything else except for that one conclusion. So you don't want to taint yourself one way or another. You want to kind of look at it more um, pragmatically, I guess is the right way to say that. Okay, so 1 Kings 9. The first thing is Solomon 
Oops, no. The first king, the first thing is God appears to Solomon, right? And Solomon builds cities, however you want to say it. Builds up his kingdom, that works too. Um, all right. So let's go through and look at each of the paragraphs on this one real quickly. Um, I kind of put one to nine all together and what it'd be easy to go through there and, and actually even break it down further. Let's just talk about it a little bit. But tell me, what do you see in one in one to nine? Yes, that is that is the subject matter, and, but what is the event? Because remember, when you're looking at when you're looking at historical records, you're looking for people, places, and events. So this is the one that the Lord appears to him in, right? The Lord appeared to Solomon. Um, has the Lord appeared to Solomon before? So I put second time up here in kind of a little note to myself just to to help me re to see that if I were going back through my observation worksheets I'd want to say oh this is the second time when was the first time you know hopefully I won't have forgotten that but if I had then that would give me a clue to go back and look for that <clears throat> okay so now what there's a there's a subject that arises in here that's almost subliminal but we pick up on it because we understand the implications of the conversation going on what is the subject that that god is speaking to solomon about when he's telling him do this or don't do that the covenants, right? So there's a subliminal message here about the two previous covenants that God has made. What are the two covenants that are strongly um, revealed to us in here? Th that's right. The, not, well, not the Abrahamic. This is interesting because it's, it's the, the, Noah, the Noahic covenant. That's right, the covenant of the law and the Davidic one, as you said, Kathleen. So you got the the Davidic covenant and the no and the I'm going to call it the covenant of law because I think it's easier to say than Noadic. <laughs> Either is is acceptable, however. So where do we see the the covenant of the of David in here? In which verses? Particularly in verse five. Now it's very interesting. Um, because five, he says, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father, David. So again, he's making reference back to this Davidic covenant, correct? All right. Um, and so did you mark that word promised? Nice big rainbow on there or whatever you're using for your word. Um, so, and he says, and if, and I'm going to establish that throne as I promised David, and you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So it's almost as though it's an emphatic, I, I've done it. I promised it to David. It's a done, done deal. And is it? Absolutely it is. It is a done deal. But then he says, but. Then what does he say in the next verse? Yeah. So what is God actually doing in this particular verse between him and Solomon? What do you think he's, he's doing here? 
it, does it look to you like he's um, inviting a covenant relationship between himself? Is he making him a promise? Yes. When God promises in the manner that he's doing about the subject that he's doing, is this in reference then to another covenant? Is Okay, in this covenant then, he's trying to engage a covenant then with Solomon, yes? What kind of a covenant, however, is this one? It is, again, a conditional covenant. So what is this subject not related to? Salvation. That's right. It's not related to salvation because it is conditional. Are you catching that? It's a little tiny subtle hint. But if you catch it, it helps clarify in your mind, oh, just because he's going to give Solomon a, a throne doesn't mean that Solomon knows the Lord by, in, in a salvation relationship. But just that he has said to Solomon, if you will obey me, then I will also do for you that which I promised to your father David, which, by the way, I am going to do, because David did do exactly as he was supposed to, which was he walked faithfully with me. And he told David, if you walk faithfully, I will have you, your bloodline, will always have a, a, uh, a ruler upon the throne. Now, tell me, how has that been fulfilled? Does anybody have through Jesus? Now, who is Jesus by title often called? The son of David. Yes, exactly. So Jesus himself then becomes through that bloodline. Through, and how does that happen? Because David is born into what tribe? The tribe of Judah. And he is called the son of David. So we see that God promised David, you will have a king to sit on the throne forever. Has he, has he done that? Yes. yes. And now that king one day will return and take his position and literally and physically rule upon this earth one day, and then all the way into eternity. And he said that king will be there forever. So God has done that. But he gave an opportunity here. If you, did, if you didn't see it and if you missed it, you might want to put yourself a little note. Here's an offer of, co of a covenant relationship between God and Solomon. And he told Solomon, he said, if you will, indeed, he says, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then, then he turns to an, another subject then. He moves from the Davidic covenant to another subject. What is it? He, what's going to happen to Israel if they don't obey? They're going to be cut off the lamb. Which covenant is that? If you don't, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. That's the no, the Noadic covenant. That is the or Moad, Mosaic covenant rather. That is the covenant of the law. So when you, when it talks about being cut off from the land, that was the covenant God made. Uh, through Moses with them at Mount Moriah when he said to them, if you obey me, I will bless you, and if you don't, I, I will curse you. And as long as you're in obedience to me, you will remain on the land, you'll be fruitful, you'll, you'll, you'll multiply, all these wonderful blessings will come, but if you don't, if you turn away from me and you serve other gods, then I will cast you off the land. So when you see a thing here where it says he's going to cut Israel off the land, you just, he just switched conversations on him. This is now speaking of the uh, covenant of the law. So if it helps you, and it, it was helpful for me, I just made those as little footnotes in my, on my observation note uh, worksheet so that I could see them there, that I could see these are the two major subjects that are being uh, discussed here between God and Solomon. Mm -hmm. The, the mosaic is the law, the covenant of the law. 
that's right. Moses. Right. We were talking about the Noah. I, I was messed up. Okay. I was wrong. Okay. It's, not no, it's not Noah. It's Moses. Yes. Okay. I'm so sorry. It was a misspeaking on my part. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So we've got those two covenants, the Davidic and the covenant of the law. That's why I like to call it covenant of the law. It's so much easier to remember. Okay. So they're going to be cut off from the land. So verses 1 to 9 then, it's the Lord appeared to Solomon. And in that, if, as you look at this bringing up of two covenants and even the offering to him of his own covenant where he says, and if you will do this and I will also bless you. Now, what have you, what are you see going on here then? What is God reassessing or re restating here for him what is he reminding him of these old covenants right he's basically re reassessing them or re what is the right word it's um he's reaffirming that's the right word he's reaffirming the old covenants to uh solomon right so the lord appeared to solomon and i'm going to put on here reaffirms Um, covenants. Okay, and then he makes a promise to him as well. But I think the idea that he reaffirms these old uh, covenants is really an important thing because God is not starting with Solomon at this point in his life, right? In a place where, where Solomon's going, I never heard this stuff. He's referring back to things that Solomon already knew. And it was covenants, by the way. The whole reason Israel is on the land is because of this covenant of the law. They entered into this covenant with God, said, yes, God, we will do it. And God said, okay, good. I'm sending you in. Right? So they're only on the land because God made covenant with them at Mount Moriah. All right. So that's the first nine verses. Then we get to uh, 10 to 14. And we have an old friend mission in here. Who is he? Ty Hiram, the king of Tyre. And interesting little storyline, right? Tell me what is happening there in 10 to 14. Oh, my goodness. Solomon, Solomon um, gave, yeah, king of Tyre. 20, I put it this way, Israeli cities. And then land of Galilee. Right? That, that was our geographical place. So when you look at the land of Galilee, so when you do a word study, now if you did not know these were Israeli cities, that he had given him 20 cities, right? You would totally miss this point and you would not see the problem in it and this is where the issue comes with so many students of God's word is you don't pick up on those little things and you don't go back and take a look to see what is going on here right so let's talk about those 20 cities geographically real quick uh, maybe I'll use this one here instead let's get a different color in okay we've got 20 cities In the land of Galilee. So there's my, my time. Now, they were given to the king of Tyre, and for what reason? Does it tell us? Mm -hmm. 
houses and the temple and all these other things. Okay, so it was basically uh, a payment, wouldn't you say? He kind of, he gave it in payment for uh, uh, So what does that tell you about Solomon, who we know had amassed quite a bit of wealth at this point? We're, we're quite a ways into this, right? So what has Solomon done with all his money? That he, if he didn't have enough money, he's now turned to giving away land, right? <laughs> Good one, Margaret. You are absolutely right. Why would, now this is, why is this a problem? So where is the land of Galilee? When you, did anybody do a word study on that particular Hmm? Well, I'm hoping you guys did. You didn't do any of these word studies on this? Let me see if I can find my land of Galilee. It's in here somewhere. Here it is. He was not having, that was an interesting little quality about this. Very, very interesting. The turn of events in this, almost by divine intervention if it to me definitely shows the hand of God in in protecting what God had given to Israel because he was willing to give away these 20 lands let me just read you the word definite the the uh, Hebrew word study that I did on this it's a territory in Naphtali now who's Naphtali one of the 12 tribes right largely occupied at that time by heathen it was a circuit of towns, so Galilee was considered not just a city, but a, a, an area, right? Um, and it, it, around this place called Kadesh Naphtali, in which were situated the 20 towns given by Solomon uh, to Hiram, king of Tyre, as payment for his work in conveying timber from Lebanon to Jerusalem. So, because we see that he actually gives that clear statement that he talks about he supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desires very interesting so he gave it as a bargaining thing as a, as payment it wasn't like he gave it as a gift he gave it in payment for something that he owed yes Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So this man had given Solomon an awful lot of gold, and the land that he was giving to him must have been valued highly, and, and somehow Solomon thought that maybe this king of Tyre would want it. But uh, did you guys do any other commentary work on that to say why did Hiram not really want this land? Why was it not suitable to him? Who, do you guys remember when we did Ezekiel? who the king of Tyre was, and one of the things that he was boasting about. Yeah, yeah, well, the fall, he's, he's a, a personification of Satan, right, who has fallen, arrogance and pride and so forth. But do you remember who the king of Tyre was when we did Ezekiel? What did they tout? What was their major um, uh, avenue through which they became wealthy and powerful? The sea, that's exactly right. So why do you think he didn't want the land of Galilee? <laughs> it was too far inland. It was not going to be of any use to him. They were seamen. That's who the, 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 uh, the, the people of Tyre were. Their entire economy and wealth and um, the productions that they gave, everything they did was through the sea. It was through import-export. 
right? And so for him, he looked at the, the land that he gave him, and it talks about it being a contemptuous kind of a, a, a remark he, he gives to him about it. But what you're also seeing is that he's just basically saying it's, a, it's really of no value to me. It's land, it, and it has value, but not for me. And so he refused it. Boy, was that a divine intervention or what, right? Because this land of Galilee was inland. It was in, in the place of Naphtali. I think that's how it's spelled. Naphtali, the land of Naphtali. A-L-I. No E. Naphtali, okay. Um, and he, this was interesting. Um, I looked at a uh, Bible history on this, the note. The diversion of so much labor and the taxation which Solomon undertakes must have involved were felt as a grievous service. Oh, th that's talking about the heavy yoke. Wait a second. Um, that wasn't what I thought I was going to give you. There was another note I had. It was talking about how he basically did not value it because it was not going to be of any kind of real help to him. So I, I thought that was my note there, but that wasn't it. It was another one. Sorry. I'll hang on to that one for later. Okay, now. Okay, so, but then he gives the place a name that I thought was really interesting and kind of a familiar name to us today. What was the name? Kabul. Uh-huh. So Kabul, what does that word Kabul mean? Sterile. A sense of limiting, it was the word binding fettering or shackles or being braided because held down right so in other words he was saying of the land that because it was not on the sea it was for them it would have been basically just a burden it would have shackled him because it wasn't going to produce the things that their country was producing so it wasn't going to be an asset to him it was just going to be a shackle he was going to have to oversee it. He was going to have to manage the people on it. He was going to have to figure out how they were going to get their supplies and their foods and their income. And it was all going to be outside of what they're already into as a nation, uh, as Tyre. Okay? Okay, so that was Kabul. Let's put that on here. C-A-B-U-L. Fettered. Shackled. Uh, bind, I think is the other word, binding. <laughs> well, you know what? That is a commentary interpretation. That is correct. Well, it is, because, but I mean, it's a good one. Good for nothing. Good for nothing to who? To him, to, to the king of Tyre. Good to nothing for the king of Tyre. But was it good, to no, good for nothing for God's people Israel? No. So that's how you can kind of see that, oh, that's what they, they looked at the whole storyline and said, ah, that's what he meant. He meant it was good for nothing. It was not good to him and for anything, right? Uh, well, was it? Well, I'm just saying what they did is they took, they took that and drew a conclusion. That's how, well, it, and it quite likely is their interpretation. I'm just saying that they concluded that because is it good for nothing for God's people? No, but Hiram thought it was good for nothing, right? This sounds like it's the root of something that is expressed in the New Testament. Uh-huh. When one of his disciples was being led to Jesus, 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good for nothing. <laughs> right. That's true. Okay. Kabul Inland Naftali. Uh, it's land of the promised land. Okay. So once you see that you've looked at this, you've done your word study on this, and you find out that these 20 cities in the land of Galilee were part of the promised land. Now when you go back and lay that against the text, then it says that he gave these to who? Hiram, the king of Tyre. Is there a problem? Oh, yeah, big problem. <laughs> so for me, I just did this in my part of the, in my observation worksheet, just so I would know this was not a good thing. This was a bad thing, that what he did. I wanted to make sure that I understood that, oh, this is a problem. This is, because otherwise you can cursory go through this, right? Were there any of you in here that really had not picked up on the fact that that was a problem? Because you looked at that and you go, well, okay, he gave Hiram land because he owed him money, right? He owed him something for things that he had been, he was... I know. Well, yes, and that part is complicated, and we don't have the whole story here. What's very interesting is in this particular record, this author is trying to make a point, right? So he's, he introduces the subject of God's covenant. Solomon, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And by the way, if, you, if the people living on my land do not obey, I will quickly cut them off from the land, and I will also do what for my temple, my house? I will destroy it also off the land. It will be removed from before my sight, correct? Yes, Kathleen. Yes. <laughs> I circled that one. Good catch, Kathleen. Did you notice he says it's my land? He didn't say their land. He said it's my land right? I have designated this for a divine purpose. This is my land. Very interesting, too. Does anybody know why God would pick the place that he did pick, that divine land? I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, and we can get into some, some theories that are too technical for us today. But interestingly, when God created this nation, he took a single man out of the land of the Chaldeans. He was of no consequence, he had basically nothing. He made these promises to him and put him, told him, I'm going to give you this land and, the, and I'm going to birth out of you a nation. And how long did God wait to do that? Until he and his wife were beyond the years of bearing children, right? So the fact that they ended up with the son itself was a supernatural act, correct? That land is, if you look at it in relationship to the countries uh, above it and below it and on each of the sides of it, or, or at least one side of it anyway, what, what is Israel as far as geography is concerned? It's what? It's in a very key place because it's a passage route from the, from the east to the, to the, or north to the south, basically, north and south of, of Jerusalem, right? But from those countries up in where uh, Persia and um, Lebanon and all those other countries above it, and then below it is Egypt. And these were, this was a main thoroughfare, land mass. And so it was highly valued, highly coveted, because it gave people access to these two great continents. And in the middle is this teeny-weeny little strip of land how hard do you think it would be to hold that land? Very hard. 
It is a, it's, again, what do you see happening when God is doing that? It's a supernatural thing. So what we're seeing here is God is saying, this is my land. Because you know what I'm going to do with my land? I'm going to reveal my glory to the world through it. I'm going to show them my power, my word accomplished, my will fulfilled, and I will do exactly what I said. And then there's other reasons as well we won't go to. But, but think of that, uh, considering where Solomon is in the time of history, and he's trying to secure these lands and these cities, and we're watching him do some of that very successfully. But here at the very opening, the very first thing after he gives us an account of a covenant, and he says, if you keep my word, I will bless you and I will keep you upon the, upon the throne and your children after you, right? And then the very first reference he gives about his building programs is 20 cities that he does what? gives them away to another nation. Interesting. So what do you think the point is? Something about, about his relationship with God is amiss. Something about, now, when you think about the timeline of this, the writing of this was, where were they at the time that this writing was uh, uh, written in Kings? at least halfway through their Babylonian captivity. So if this author's purpose is to help Israel see how they got where they are, and when they are about to come back, because in a few years they will be coming back, as God promised, um, because we're going to look at that Chronicles verse, right, where God made a promise, if you will repent, if you will turn to me and, and confess your sin, I will return you, I will heal your land, I will put you, place you back upon your land. So when God is going to do that and he's going to bring them back, this author seems to be writing a record to explain to them where they went astray. Because do you think in the eyes of, of the general population who, if they themselves don't have a personal committed relationship to God, they're living on the land, yes. They're under the covenant and the blessing of the, of the uh, law, but they're not wholly committed to God. And so do you think these kinds of people think it was a problem for him to give away the land of Galilee? Well, except who was in the land of Galilee at that point? The Canaanites were still down there. What had they, what, so what had Solomon and David not yet accomplished in that part? They had not utterly cleared off the land there. Uh, Solomon? No, 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 not at all. That was absolutely fine to build. Okay, good point. So you've got this mixture going on here, and I think it, it applies for us in our personal life today, and that is, do we have um, adventures in life or, or passions of things that we want to accomplish that are actually good? But is there a possibility of going about it the wrong way? Yeah. In this particular record right here, God actually saved Solomon's neck. He gave away part of the land. And this king decided he didn't really like it or want it. It was of no value or of no good to him. So he basically said, no, keep it, right? Thank goodness he saved his neck because he got to keep the land that God issued to, to them as a nation. So God intervened in that, in my opinion. God, for whatever reason, chose to give... Uh, to, to 
uh, the king of Tyre a heart that says, no, I really, this land is of no value to me. It's, it's worthless to me because it doesn't affect or, or give me the benefits that I would need for my nation. Yes. Well, we know that because what did Solomon then do with that land? Oh, I guess that would be the land of Galilee. Yep, 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 yep. So in, in the end, Solomon then took those cities, those 20 cities, and then they begin to name them, right? He says it's at the land of Kabul. And then he says, now this is the record of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem. Then he mentions three cities, Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer, which are in the land of what? Galilee, right? So he, he lists some of those cities. And of those, those are three of those 20 cities that he would have then gone down and rebuilt or built up or strengthened. He only mentions three, but they're, they're the more major ones that give us a clue. So let's, let's look at those, okay? We have, first of all, I want to talk about the Milo. What is a Milo? That was in 915 of 1 Kings 9. Very good. It's a mound of dirt that was used to fortify or support or give, give additional protection, right, and, and to, to strengthen the city walls, correct? Um, does anybody know what they also did with the Milo? What else it was used for? Well, there's not, yes, but around the temple, basically. But what did they use the, the mounds of dirt? What did they then do with the mounds of dirt? We know that they were built to support, you guys, obviously, okay, let me read it. Fortifications of Jerusalem, right? That's what the, the Milo was. And it's fortifications in a variety of places, not just the temple, but also around the city walls itself. And then guess what they did? The ramparts were built up. They provided places for residential homes, houses to be built for who to live in? The city, the, the, the residents of Israel, okay? Right? So if, if these mounds that were built up to give fortification to walls and additional protection that gave more mass, because apparently these were, these were things that were built up on hills. So there wasn't enough mass, out, mass outward. They didn't want the walls crumbling and falling down. So they built mounds of dirt around them. And then because they had this dirt built up around it, now they had some level places to do what? Build houses. How valuable do you think it was for the people of, of Jerusalem to have additional housing? How many of you have been to Israel? <laughs> there is not enough housing, right? And, it, and it's high rises is what they end up with. So now let's go back, and I want you to read this, okay, with me. Um, I'm going to jump over to verse um, 24. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, then... He built the Milo. Very interesting. Okay, now who's, who gets to live on the houses of the Milo? The Israelites. Who got taken care of first? Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh of Egypt's daughter. Do you see a problem in that thought? Who did Solomon take care of first? His foreign wife rather than who? The citizens of Israel. 
another little little tiny oh my goodness oh my once I figured out what the Milo was my mind immediately went oh verse 24 says he took care of her before he took care of the Milo the Milo provided housing for the Israelites who desperately needed it because there wasn't enough of it there and yet he handled his wife first now that's not to say that in his mind practicality and certainly for political reasons would it have been better for him to handle the wife first? Yes. But also, this goes back then to the problem with, should he have married a, a woman from Egypt to begin with, a, a princess from e Egypt? No. So he broke, a, he broke a law that God had about intermarrying with other uh, nations. And then, because it's a political move on his part, he is now obligated to put her needs on a higher priority than the needs of his, his own land and people. Yes? He could not put her in David's house. Yes. The ark had been there, so he thought David's house was holy. And, and so he did have a little hint that, uh, you know, God wouldn't approve. That's right. Okay, good, good catch, Margaret. So what we see then is he wouldn't let her go into the palace of David and live there because of the the holiness of the, the sites where the Ark of the Covenant had been. And so, so he knew better. So, he knew better. <laughs> so this tells you what he knew he should and shouldn't be doing, and yet he did it anyway. No, but I mean he married her anyway, even though he knew that he should not do that. Because it takes us back to Corinthians where it talks about uh, a believer marrying an unbeliever, and what does it tell us about that? Yes. It dominoes, doesn't it? There's, a, there's an effect that you have no clue what's going to happen. Yes, that little crack in the wall, Carrie. Right. Right. And he sent her a pet. Right, so that's another point, Carrie, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like she was living on the streets. She had a place to be. However, who was on the streets? The Israelites, probably living yet in Bedouin tents of various forms because they didn't have enough housing. So he puts Pharaoh's daughter above his own, provides for her a palace. Then later he builds up the Milo, in a, and which provides in a place for other houses for the Israelites to live. Oh, and yes. Gave that as a dowry for his daughter too. And that was another that was the city of Ge of Gazer. Yes. Okay, so that in itself I thought it didn't say but I'm like is God even though God wanted a lot of people the Canaanites dead way back when, right too. Mm -hmm. And they didn't kill all that. But whose job was it to do that? To do. So I would my quandary was not that God was going, oh, great, he did it for me kind of thing when the other ones were supposed to do it, but it made me just wonder again what you thought about that scenario other than was that more sin being created for so, a, a situation that shouldn't have been happening with the Pharaoh and Solomon? So what do you think? When it came to the city of, of Gezer where it says that Pharaoh went up, when it says he went up, up from where? Egypt. Up from Egypt into where? 
into Israel. He went into Israel, onto Israel's land, and conquered one of their cities. One of the cities, by the way, which Israel was supposed to have conquered and cleared the land. He got in there, and what did he do? He killed everybody. He burned every, everything. He did exactly what God had told Israel to do. But who did it? A pagan king of Tyre. For his, for his, well, and he did it for his daughter, but, but regardless, my, my question was, my question is, how in the world did he get away with just invading into the Israeli kingdom and committing an act of aggression against anyone on the land, even though they were bad people in, in our mindset, they were people that uh, Solomon should have been killing and cl cleaning off the land, but he didn't do it, and still the land is his. And now you've got, it'd be like Mexico coming into America and cleaning out, you know, the cartel out of our cities. Do you want the Mexican government and their, their you know, their army to come into the border towns of, of Texas and clean out the cartel? Who? Now that's a reality check. Now you're going, oh, wait a minute. That, now, who let him do that? Right? Well, that's what this king did. The king, the king of, of Egypt came up into Israel, Israeli land and, and captured a city and cleaned out the, the, the bad people, basically, that should have been gone anyway. But whose job was it to do it? Huh? He was giving her as, uh, as a gift, but I'm thinking yeah. as a gift for what? If it wasn't his land again, Good what's the point? I don't get it. I, and they don't mention anything. No, no, but you have to understand the politics and all this, and you have to start adding in. So the things that we just discussed, the fact that he came up into, to the, into the country of Israel as a foreign king into our country and captured our land. I, I'm speaking as if I'm an Israeli person. Ca captured one of our cities, wiped it off, and then gave it as if it was his to give. I know, Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so again, back to what Don says. This is like a domino. You, you open the crack an inch, and they'll take a mile. And that's what he's done. And because he's in covenant with this man, he now has to basically play nice, right? It doesn't not. Now, here's, here, here's my question. What in your life, or is there in your own life, anything like this going on? Have you given a crack so that Satan gets a foothold, and then now because you've given a, a, an inch, you're feeling obligated to go a mile? In, is, are you compromising anything in your personal life because, you know, you, you have got yourself into a situation by allowing a relationship that was really a forbidden one to begin with? Yeah. Boy, I've got, in my own life, there are things going on. I mean, not that I've compromised, but things that have happened in relationships where there's a compromise that's been occurring. And because of that, it is having a domino effect in relationships in the family. And it all started, I think, with, a, with sin. And when you let sin sneak in, and when you don't hold fast to God's commandments, 
and you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, first and foremost, if you don't filter everything through a knowledge of God's word before you make your decisions. You know, my thought was, did Solomon go to the temple, offer sacrifice, and consult with any of the, uh, the prophets or the priests before he gave those 20 cities away? Did he do that before he married the, the, the daughter of Egypt? And interesting, one of the commentaries brought up the fact about this relationship between uh, Solomon and this daughter of Pharaoh, that she is mentioned over and over and over again in script, just dropped in kind of precariously here and there. As if the statement of this marriage is speaking volumes without saying another word about it. They just bring it in there. Well, and, you know, it'd be kind of like saying, and and that person um, committed a felony and blah, 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 blah. And they talk about everything else. But the felony is the the clue that there's something else going on in that person's life that that was, they had done something illegal, (laughs) right? It tells you they did something illegal. And because of that, these other things were either allowed to occur or did occur. So we're catching clues just by looking at cities, geography. Isn't that an amazing inductive Bible study process? That if you look at your geography and then weigh out what you're seeing and what you know about, about God's land and what he said about it, the fact that he gave away 20 of the cities of the land of Galilee, which belonged to the tribe of Naphtali, and it, but well, it did, and it belonged to God, but it belonged to Israel, and it was the land that God had given to them as a nation. And as a matter of fact, you remember the the year of jubilee that every so many years, if they've sold off any land to one another, even every fifty years, put God put in their law a system so that the land would revert back to the original owner of that particular tribe. That's how much He wants that land protected. And here we have Solomon giving it away to the king of Tyre. Pharaoh's daughter. That's right, to make that point. And also, it's to say that, you know, we don't know. I found it really interesting that some of the commentaries want to try to let her off the hook all over and over and how, you know, there are some, um, I guess, theories or suggestions that at some point she actually came into the Jewish faith herself, possibly. But that does not eradicate the problem. He still made a covenant with with the daughter of the king of Egypt. And what that did was it made Egypt an ally to Israel. Egypt, whom God saved his people out of. Egypt, who God perpetually throughout all of scripture refers to them as the land of sin that they were saved out of, the land of slavery that they were saved out of. And the land, by the way, which he told them in Deuteronomy, do not ever go back there again. Because it's pictorially the coming from darkness into light pictorially that's the picture that God had in that for them and here we have him do okay so we've got the milo it's uh mounds of dirt basically to build up and and support walls it provided um Land for house building, houses for Israel's people. So then when you go to uh, 924, um, 
it says Solomon built uh, daughter's house first. Okay? And that, that to me right there said a lot when I realized that that was what, what was going on there. I mean, in the first reference, he, you totally miss it because it just says that he, he built these up, right? But then you, later you find out in verse 24 that he did it after he handled his other responsibility with the, with the daughter. Okay, so um, one of the other... I think affirming verses that lets you know that this area here, this land of Galilee, actually was the land of the promised land is when you get into Second Chronicles uh, 8.2. And it was one of our things that we did, but it says that he settled the sons of Israel there. Okay. So that was just kind of a confirmation verse. But, of course, when you do your map looking, even, you'll see that. It says, he settled sons of Israel there in, in this, these 20 city areas. Second Chronicles 8.2. Okay. Okay, so now we know what the, Mi the Milo is. Now, the other cities are just interesting. Hazer, I looked it up. Hazer is north of Jerusalem, also allotted to Naphtali, fortified because of its importance as a town in the northern boundary of the country. So it was, it was basically a fortification city, a city to help give protection, in particular for, for Jerusalem and Judah, right? Because as people would come down through the land, they would hit these fortification cities. What kind of things were stored at these fortification cities? Horses, chariots, weapons, food, all kinds of things, right? So this was their way of then basically having um, a protection all around them. So when you look at your map, you're going to see that these are, are the way, uh, what he's doing. Megiddo, another one, it's a city of Canaan, so it's up further, up north. Uh, also allotted to Naphtali, fortified because of its importance as a town in the northern uh, boundary. Oh, I, w I missed it. Sorry. Let me reread Megiddo. Megiddo, a city of Canaan assigned to Manasseh, situated in the great caravan road between Egypt and Damascus. Oh, that was kind of cool because we've heard about the road to Damascus, right? And that was a heavily traveled road. Um, it became very dangerous as well because, remember, uh, people would be uh, accosted along that road often. It was the key to the north of Palestine by the western lowlands, and therefore they had to, to fortify it. And then uh, Gezer, or Gezer, the one that was given to the daughter as a dowry. This is very interesting. Do you know who owned this land? The Levites. It was a Levitical city on the border of Ephraim, it is uncertain when the king of Egypt captured this city, but the text indicates it was a breach of Israel's borders when he had gone up to do so. Okay. Gezer, G-E-Z-E-R in 915. And you said Megiddo was from... Ma Manasseh. And Hazer was from Naphtali. 
So very interesting. So at least the one thing you you accomplish, though, when you look at these fortress cities, my the Milo itself is considered a, a fortification. So it was a along the lines of the idea of building up fortification cities. It was for Jerusalem itself. So first he fortified Jerusalem. Then he began to work north and, and south and so forth in order to build up the others. Hazer, Megiddo, and Ge Gezer. So here we, I've got a map. So we have Jerusalem here. We have Gezer here, Megiddo here. Hazer is all the way up here. Now this is very interesting on this map. See this little pink line that kind of runs down through here? And it's coming from way up in the, the country above, which would be Syria and Lebanon. And it's coming all the way down towards where? E Egypt, right? And again, this landmass then called Israel becomes this thoroughfare between these countries, right? These major countries. And so it looks to me like all of these cities are right along that main thoroughfare. It could be. I didn't find anything that said that, but... I just know it was a major thoroughfare. It was very highly and frequently used as a major route of travel. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what the, the um, geezer right here. It's almost to the left of Jerusalem. Yeah, so it would be in here somewhere. I know that was another do you know what this was another problem I kept having when I was doing my map work is no one map had all the names of these places I wish there was one for feast of first Kings chapter 9 wouldn't it be nice if one of you <laughs> not me one of you would do a map for us and we could print it off and give it out to everybody where we had every location I did figure out later we're going to get there uh to uh what was it Ezion, Geber, and Eloth. I figured out where they were finally and put them on my map, but they weren't on the, this map either. Either I had to go to another map to find out where they were, and then I tried to, uh, you know, combine the two. And that's why I'm saying somebody needs to take all these names of these cities that are on this one chapter and get them on one map for us. Because what's really cool about seeing this is once you do, you see the strategic brilliance of this man. You see how wisdom that God gave him really comes into play. And, you know, we don't want to take away from the fact that God promised him wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and he was brilliant. And people all around the world recognize that about him. To this very day, people talk about the wisdom of Solomon. And so he was very smart. It's just that what he, what he did with his brilliance was also to violate a lot of things. And so somewhere in this, there's a lesson for us. There's a story that tells us that we need to know. Yes, Donna. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that, I th here's what I think. Why do you think Solomon gave land to the king of Tyre rather than paying him money? He was broke. He was broke. What had he done in his building projects? overextended his budget even though he had tons of gold coming in tons tons of gold coming in he didn't have enough he was the wealthiest and all his wealth as you walk through his kingdom could be seen it was there it was but it was invested as we call it today you know I have I have wealth 
my house. <laughs> you know, I don't have a dime in my pocket, but we got a house, right? A lot of us have that. You got a car, that's your wealth, <laughs> you know. So he had invested all of his money, and he had overspent, so he had nothing in the coffers. There was nothing store-banked for him that he could use. So what did he have that was of value? He gave the land away. It does not in any way imply to us that, you know, he was hoping that the guy would reject it. <laughs> if, if that were the case, he would have said that, I think, in the text. It would have told us that. Okay, so that was cool. So now that takes us through all of these 20, and I'm not going to write all those others down. We just talked about them. But now you know where they are on the map. You see they're on a main through fare. You see that they were, they were considered the fortress cities, Okay. Yes, of course you can ask a question. What part did he have to read every day of the sermon? Okay. Oh, good question. All right. What do you think? But how much of the law? Well, think about it just pro God, if God wants us to read his word every day, Margaret, he want, does he want you to read his word every day? Mm -hmm. How much do you have to read every day? Some, just some, because what he's also doing is he's taking an original parchment of the word and he's writing his own so that progressively he moves down the line little by little each day. He gets a little bit more. He, and he started at the beginning probably with, with Genesis, but it was the whole Pentateuch probably that he was to write. It took him from, right, wouldn't you say, Genesis all the way to uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's right. So he was studying all the, even the historical things that had happened. He would know. He would see how God intervened. Yes. Think about when he hit the flood. What would he have learned about obeying God there and about not intermarrying and how God is going to uh, uh, completely wipe you off the land? Yes. Right. That's right. So you've got to be practical in your thinking about the reality is a human being can only take in so much any one given day. God didn't expect him to read all five books every single day. He just expected him to read a little bit of it each day. And he was to actually record it, it said. He was to record his own copy so that he would have a complete copy when he was done and we'll have complete probably a Bible in the year kind of a pro pro project, right? Like we, we read the Bible in a year. He, he had to write the Bible in a year probably <laughs> is my guess. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. So the application in this for us is so clear that God, not only did he require this of his king, he really requires this of us as well. He wants, a, not that we have to write a Bible out, although that wouldn't be a bad idea. It'd be kind of a fun project to start in your life. You know, you do a read through the Bible in a year thing. Have you ever tried to write the Bible in a year? I mean, of course, that's a lot of books. They only ha he only had to do the first five books. So, so maybe plan maybe plan the first five books of the law as your year one project and see how far you can get. So that at the end of a year, you have written out by hand, not typing, because typing is cheating, but right by hand, 
and meditate on what you've written. Because can you imagine how with every stroke of the pen as he wrote things, he would look at that and meditate on it. And he would think, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he wrote that, what do you think went through his mind? <laughs> well, today they would doubt it, but we know. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yes, because. Well, I would think that it's, it's for the purpose of understanding the holiness of God's word and that he didn't violate any of the, the holiness qualities of what, you know, the, the priests, when they wrote the word, when they inscribed things, it was a special pen. It was a new pen every single day. It could not be an old pen. They could not use it again day two or day three. They had to get a new pen every day. I wouldn't require that of you. <laughs> you may use the same pen. And God's word, they had to go and wash, ceremonially wash, and then come back and, and, then, and then continue on. I mean, so there was a process. Now, I don't know if they required of him, the king, to go through the Levitical processes that they did, but possibly, and that may be why it says in the presence of the priests that the priests would ensure that he would regard the holiness of God's word. And maybe to ask questions. You know, I would like to have a priest present when I'm doing Bible study. I could just turn to him and, well, you know, but not, not, well, I won't go there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So the fortress cities, Milo, then we, we looked at Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer, all in verse 15. So we're not making much progress here. Let's go on to, let's talk about, um, the next verses, which is uh, 14, no, it's 15 and 16. We see an event. What happened there? This is where Pharaoh did what? He captured, uh, yes, yeah, see, because we've already talked about it, so now we're just going to get it written. He captured Gezer again, right? That's a Levitical city. Um, yeah, he burned it down, he did all that. And then, and then Solomon, this is another part of this story that's in there. Solomon then built it up, right? He took that city. It was one of these 20 that, that the king of um, Tyre rejected. So now he's got that city. Over here in 15 and 60, Pharaoh had ca captured it. Gezer was in it. And he, and he gave it to his daughter. But then what did he do with it? What did Solomon do? It's interesting because the verse 15 says, and this is the record of what? Forced labor. So there's a point being made here, right? And the point is that he used forced labor to build this city up. Now, just by the fact that he stated this is the record about forced labor, what does that tell you? What, what should go on for you? Ding, 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 ding. There's a point being made here. Okay, first of all, there are illegal aliens, the ones that have been left on the land. They're still living on the land, right? They're, I know it. Okay, or, or let's put it this way, the Gentiles. I, I was trying to use a, a common term that we understand. <laughs> I know. 
but they are, they are their illegal aliens. They are the ones that are not supposed to be on the land. They have been left on the land. They had not wiped them off the land. They had not killed them and annihilated them. They were the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, right? And he, they had not wiped them off the land. They're still living on the land. And not only had he not killed them and wiped them off the land, now what does he do with them? He puts them under forced labor. Is it a good thing to put another man under forced labor? Yeah, they had their slaves. Well, but I, I don't know. In God's economy, it almost sounds like it's better to be dead than be a slave. Not that God ever really condemns it in other places in Scripture, but the principle is there that freedom is God's greatest gift to all men. And so this man has taken forced labor. And what work are they doing again? They're building the cities. Who was supposed to conquer and then build the cities? The Israelites were supposed to be doing their job. It's kind of like when you coerce, what was it, the old story of Huckleberry Finn and he's whitewashing the fence and he, and he kind of tricks someone else into doing his job for him, right? And they end up doing, who was supposed to do the work? Huckleberry Finn, not his buddy that he tricked. So in this case, it's not a trick, it's a coercion. This guy kept people on the land who were there. They weren't supposed to be there. He makes them slaves, and he forces them to do the heavy labor. It's a subtlety in here, but this is the record of forced labor. And what was their forced labor? They built cities that the Israelites were supposed to build. So they did their job for them. That's a big point, don't you think? Yeah. Yes, in, right, where the, where the Levitical city was in this case. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, and it said that he pleased Solomon to do what? Yes, well, certainly, and you know, that's the part that where if you're not really digging into this inductively as we're doing here, it would be very easy to cursory go over that and go, oh, good job, Solomon. He should be proud. He did a good thing, right? He's fortifying cities. He's building cities. He's taking possession of the land. He's, yeah, he took possession of the land by letting another king come in and do it for him. And then, and then he used forced laborers to labor to build it up. And was that God's plan? No. Amen, Juanita. Amen. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, how many things can one guy get wrong and still look like he's a good guy? Because the people now are looking at him and going, look at all the things he's getting done. Look at all the good works he's doing. Can you think of a situation in our current history or in your personal life where you see a person who's getting a lot of good things done, but you know they're doing it in a, in a ill manner? That Some of my questions here. Do your good intentions... Or the goodness of what you are pursuing release you to use any method or means that you decide to accomplish those goals. Is it okay for God's people to live above the law, thinking that you are above its restraints or limitations, because of your status or position? In other words, because you're, you know, the president or because you're the the pastor of a church or because you're the lead of a of a of a ministry or whatever because you're 
per, a person like Kay Arthur, who we greatly respect, but does that let allow her to live above the law and outside of the law and not to? No. As a matter of fact, to me, that puts them in a higher position, does it not? What do we see when we look at the possible ramifications of what Solomon is doing here? It has a ripple effect because although Solomon on the one hand was going to the temple three times a year, but the rest of the time he's doing what? Giving away their land and using forced labor and... Yes, yes. And look at what he's accomplishing. Look at all the good things he's done. Yes, to go. Yes, yes. That's it. Yeah, do do the do the do the ends justify the means? Is it okay because it's a good project to accomplish it any way you want to? Now that's the that's the consequence cuz Solomon now is setting a standard because he is the leader of this nation. People are looking up to him. He's like the pop star of his day right? He's the big guy. And as he is executing these grand things, and by the way, the glitz and the glimmer could only be, could, could not be avoided to be seen as you traversed through the land. The beautiful cities and how once was just desert and ruin is now built up. There's city, there's progress, there's, there's orderliness, there's cleanness, there's, there's no war. I mean, there's all these things going on that look on the surface like, wow, he's doing great. So what does that tell us about even our evaluation of other people around us? What do you need to do when, you, when you're looking at the things that they are doing? Yeah. Line it up with the plumb line of God's word. I, I, for instance, there can be wonderful, quote, ministries out there serving around the world, saving people, and we're all, yay, I'm so glad they're saving people, but check out the internalness of their of the company that you're giving money to find out how are they spending their money and and who are they aligned with it and when they themselves give money who are they giving to right you want to know what who are they as a, what is their character about right so you have but you have to look at the character of a person not just the you know the work that they're getting in okay so um is God's grace a license to live in sin? That, that, that's a question that came right out of Romans, didn't it? May it never be. May it never be. <laughs> there you go. Um, does a nation need sound spiritual leadership? And what happens when they don't get it? What happens to Israel in time? There you go. So it's very interesting if you look at all of this and filter it through the historical setting, which is they're in the midst of a Babylonian captivity. Their land has been taken away from them. They've been ousted off of it. Their temple has been utterly destroyed. And there they sit in Babylon, and this author is writing this record and telling them, this is how you got here. This is how you got here. Okay, so Pharaoh had captured... Uh, Gazer, oh, let me finish this, uh, the title on this one. Um, 
Verses 15 and 16 of 1 Kings 9 was Pharaoh had captured Gezer and Solomon levied forced labor to build Israeli cities. I'm just going to put to build. That's enough. Okay, so then 17 to 21, which is where we were just speaking, is um, Gentiles in the land. I'll use that instead of illegal aliens for you. Okay, Gentiles in the land. In other words, those who had not been destroyed off the land as they were supposed to were levied as forced labor. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe, but I don't know if that's why, but yeah, yeah. In other words, these were, these were their slave uh, forces that did all the labor, the labor which God had told Israel to do. <laughs> they weren't doing it. They were allowing someone else to do it for them. Yes. He started it back when he built the temple. The same forced labor was used to build the temple. Okay, now, um, uh, I'm going to skip that part. Okay, let's go to verse um, 22 and 23. I'm not getting as much of this up on the board as I'd like, but. You'll see the whole list when you get it. But this is insightful stuff when you have a chance to just talk it through. Because all of a sudden, these deeper truths of what it is that's being pointed out to us, we miss because we're Gentiles. We're not Israelis. We're not under the law that they were under. And so we don't understand that. And we also are not in that same situation. We're not sitting in Babylonian captivity because we did all these sins. But these people that he's writing to are. And so if you filter it through... Though the, the people who it was written for, in particular, it's also written for us to learn from it, but it was specifically was written for Israel to learn from, so that when they went back on the land, they would not do what? Go back and do the same thing again, right? Um, what was your point, Carrie? Okay, let's do that, 22 and 23. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And for additional insight on that, though, I mean, there's some interesting things. Let's go and look ahead at two verses real quickly and and it's not hopefully it's not usurping you know or or precursor into things but I want to look at two verses go to someone look at first kings 12 4 for me who would like to read that real quick 12 verse 4 and you when you look at it maybe you might want to look at the verse before and after because sometimes I just give the one specific point but First Kings twelve four. Your father made a new people's heart. Your father made a new people's heart. Now therefore, lighten the heart of your servants 
Okay. Okay, go perfect. Okay. So in 12.4, we're going to come to see when we get there that the problem with this little verse right here, 22 and 23, is that although he does not make Israel slaves, it says that they put, he, he put a hard burden on them. Okay? So it wasn't like, oh, you just get to, to administrate over things and I'm not going to make you. Be, but it was a burden on them. And it was harsh burden to the point that it, that it caused a real problem. What was the ramification? Go to 11, 1 Kings 11, verses uh, 28 to 39. It's a bigger chunk. Who wants to read that one? Yes, nice and loud. And uh, the man Jer Jer Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor in the house of Joseph. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophets Ahijah and Shilonite found him on the road. Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them... Is that First Kings? Okay, go ahead. Both go of on. them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him, and tore it into 12 pieces. Oh, yeah. He said to Jeho Jehoabim, whatever, sorry, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the god, the goddess of Sidonians, Chalmush, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of the hand, but I will make him, him ruler of the days of his, all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observes my commandments and my statutes. Okay, stop right there for one sec. So he makes a point that he's going to rip the kingdom out of the hand of uh, the son of Solomon. It was one of the descendants after another king that follows. And he, but he's not going to rip the whole kingdom out for the sake of David because David had been faithful, right? But here we see that, that there has been a revolt that has taken place. And the kingdom has divided and split. Why did it divide and split? Because of this issue right here, harsh treatment by King Solomon. And they began to rise up and become angry that they had this harsh treatment by King Solomon. And when they went to his son Jeroboam and said, please uh, relieve us of this harsh burden, he didn't. There's a, a, another reading that you can go into, and it tells you the whole storyline of how he has a, a consult first with the elders, and the elders give him good counsel but he doesn't listen to them. Then he goes to his buddies of his own age, his friends, and his friends say, oh, no, keep your thumb on him. And so that's what he does. And in that, then they, they end up with this revolt. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's in the 12? 
First Kings 12. We are going to we are going to get there. I promise. It's just that I'm so I'm preempting a little bit on your work on this. But what I the reason I'm doing this preempting is not to spoil the fun of when we get there. But it's because the fact that the sons of Israel worked as overseers for all of Solomon's work is mentioned right after the forced labor. It shows you how he got the work done, and the fact that he had put them as overseers. <coughs> shows you that they were working for Solomon and not for themselves as God had intended. God had intended each man to build up their own home and to live on their own land to be productive and fruitful. And instead, the king did exactly as God said the king would do, put them into service for him. And in the putting them into service, he went a step further and he put harsh treatment upon them, a heavy burden. And so we see that. Okay, keep going. kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you even ten tribes but to his son and I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will affect the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to yeah. king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and whatever he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Okay, I think I might have given you the wrong place. It might have been chapter 12, because I know, but that's okay. It's still, but you still, it still gave you the storyline. It still so, showed you the struggle that was going on between, uh, be, why God, yes, go ahead. Okay, please do. It's in 12. I thought that's what I did wrong. First Kings 12, verse 10. There it is. Oh. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Who followed the advice of the young men and said, My father's name will grow heavier and my son's heavier. Okay. Okay, good, good, good. Jan- good catch, Janice. Thank you. I thought as soon as I did that, I, I bet I wonder if that was supposed to be 12, because I started in 12 4, and it should have gone 12, then 28 uh, on or verse uh, 28 to 39 that tells the storyline and specifically in verse 10 and 11 it says he put a harsh burden upon us and for this reason this rift came between the the people and their king and there was therefore a a what do you call it a um 
a sp- the, they split. They said, well, we're just going to follow this other king. So 10 of the tribes went with this other king because they were so fed up with basically providing uh, support for Judah and Benjamin. And so they went with, with their own king and vacated, basically. Yes. Okay, so does that kind of help you see a little bit better? The sons of Israel worked as overseers for all of Solomon's work. And I'm going to put on here 1 Kings 12. (laughs) And so you can read 1 Kings 12, and you can put on there a heavy burden. Uh-huh. Yes, and it's just such a sad thing because a person who has so much wisdom, ability, discern good and evil, a person who wrote uh, many of the Psalms, who wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, who wrote Song of Solomon, Proverbs, I mean, he wrote so many of the wise sayings, and so a man that was wise and able to discern things, and yet his personal life choices and how he, he actually obeyed God did not come out of that same measure of wisdom. So the wisdom that he had did not mean he had salvation. Because how do we know if we really love God? We obey him. And Solomon obviously knew what was the right thing to do. For instance, as Margaret brought up, Pharaoh's daughter, he didn't allow her to even enter into the, the palace of David for fear of her defiling the places which he considered holy. So he had a knowledge of God, an understanding of the holiness of God, but he wasn't, well, this we don't know right now, but I think when we get to the end of his life, what God says about him tells us everything. And also what's very interesting to me is as we move on forward, because I went ahead and did some more reading even further down in the Chronicles and in in, uh, 1 Kings, uh, yeah, in First Kings, every time the kingdom is referred to, it, everything God does re- regarding it reverts back to David. It never, re- you know, with with the other patriarchs, it's always who Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But when it comes to the kingdom, David. Nothing after that. Now that doesn't mean there weren't some good kings along the way. There were some good. But they were not, they, but in the lineage of that, that particular covenant of David, of, of a king being kept upon the throne, David established, God established that with David. He fulfilled it through Jesus, but in between seems to be this up and down motion. But with Solomon, he never goes through to your father David and Solomon and Rehoboam or Jeroboam, whichever one it is. Rehoboam, okay, Rehoboam. So he doesn't say that. It wouldn't have been nice if it had been all three, just as a, huh? I know, I am. (laughs) Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it would have been cool if it had said David, Solomon, and Rehoboam, but it doesn't. It just says David. So that tells you something right there. Okay, so now let's go back and finish this up. So now that we know the story behind this, the sons of Israel worked as overseers, but it was a heavy burden right? So then in 24, what do we see then? That's where Solomon builds what? Mm -hmm. A house for Pharaoh's daughter. 
Yeah, exactly. For Pharaoh's daughter, then, you can put a clock on that, then he built the Milo. Isn't it interesting that, that they even make the reference to that? That it's built after. And it shows the sequence of that. And to me, I had to pay attention. And then the reason I picked it up was because I was marking the cause and effect statements, the therefore and for this reason and sense or whatever. And so when I saw, and then he did this, first he did this, and then he did that, that. And then I thought, I wonder if there's a point in, in that. And so then when I went back to the Milo and started doing my word studies and found out the Milo provided dwelling places for the Israeli citizens, go back and read that statement. He built Pharaoh's daughter's house first, and then he built the Milo. Then you're going, oh, that's, that's not really good, right? Huh? I don't know. I don't know. No idea. So here again, you got another couple of sad faces on this, right? We know this is a sad face. Um, we know this is a sad face. We know this is, a, I, I think just about everything we're covering at this point has a negative statement to it. Although when you, if you look at it just superficially, it would look like, look at how good job he's doing. He's building up cities. He's fortifying, the, 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 he's giving fortresses of fortification. He's, he's do, doing defense and storage cities. He goes into this now. In 917, 18, and 19, he talks about Beth Haran, Balath, Tamar, and Lebanon, right? Now, Lebanon is not the country of Lebanon. Lebanon is a, land, is a, is a border of forests. It's a double row of hills, or mountains, they call them. And they're, they're, they are wooded with some trees. It's one of the rare places in Israel where there are some trees. But it's basically a natural boundary between uh, the, the country to their north and them. So that was what uh, Lebanon is. It's a wooded double mountain range near Tyre and Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, running along the northern border of Israel, marking the north boundary of the promised land. So I marked it with a yellow on here. It's right in this area here at the top. Okay? All right. Now, um, let's, go, let's go to the other one. Beth Haran is there's a lower and upper town of Beth Haran. It's on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin in the mountains of Ephraim. It's along a road between Joppa to Jerusalem and Gibeon. Remember Gibeon? What was it, Gibeon? The tabernacle, right? The original tabernacle. So it was so heavily traveled that it required to be strongly fortified. Then there's Balath. It's a town in Dan. That's north, all the way north. Um, and it's northwest of Damascus in the land. I don't know if that's correct. Anyway, it became a storage city. I'll leave that part off. Then there was Tamar, T-A-M-A-R. It also can be called Tadmor, T-A-D-M-O-R. It also can today be called Palmyra, P-A-L-M, palm, like a palm tree, Y-R-A. Um, southern border of Gad in the land of Judah between Damascus and the Euphrates. It was fortified as a security against invasion from n northern Asia. So that just shows you these are all built up as defense and storage cities. Huh? Where are you? 
919, 918, 917. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm not going to write them down because we're, we're out of time here, and I want to get to this one last point before we wrap it up. So that's in 24, all the way, we're down through there. Now we're at, at 25. That should be the last one, right? And what do we see Solomon do there? Oh, we're almost at the end. 25, and then we got one more. What does Solomon do in 25? A brief note. Solomon, okay, he offered at altar three times a year. It doesn't indicate that he does anything else. Now, whether he did or he didn't, I don't know. But the fact that they mention that he, he offers at the altar three times a year, what do you think the message of that is? He does, the, he does the minimum. It seems to me like that's what it, it conveys to me. He does the minimum required to be obedient to the law. Okay? So Solomon offered at the altar three times a year in 25. Then we go to 26 to 28. And what did Solomon do there? Yeah. So he secures. Now there's a couple of cities that are mentioned, right? Ezion, Geber, Eloth, and where is it found in verse 26? In the land of what? Now, does anybody find a problem with that? Edom was not given to them. As a matter of fact, Edom, Edom was forbidden to Israel by God. I'm going to give you some verses on this. Uh, Numbers 20, 14, and Deuteronomy 1, 4, and 5. I'm just going to read to you what I put on my notes. Deuteronomy 1, 4, and 5, and Numbers 20, 14. Okay, that'll get you in the general area. Okay, in the land of Eden, Eden, it says, land south and southeast of Israel, by edict of God, this area belonged to the descendants of Esau. Israel was not to force their way through Edom. Remember when they were trying to traverse through and Edom wasn't going to give them access or pass, passage or whatever? God said, do not, do not restrain yourselves right he says and he was not they were not to possess that land he specifically God said that God strictly protected the rights of the Edomites to whom he had given that land of Edom and he has prophecies about Edom later and we saw them also in Ezekiel when we did that that God is going to judge Edom for the things that they did, but they are going to remain upon the land and for a very specific reason, which I thought was really cool. That is that God would be given glory outside of the land of Israel because of what he's going to do in them and through them and to them, okay? Very, very interesting. So now this last part is, so Solomon secures these lands in the land of Edom, and what, what kind of things do they do there? What are these lands or these cities specifically for? Yep, it's for ships. So they're port cities. Now we're into port cities. He secures coastal trade cities, basically. And in that, what is the result? What does it say that he procured then from Ophir? Gold. So it provided for him another income of wealth. But he did it by doing what? Going into Edom, where he's not supposed to be, outside of the land of Israel, and seizing two towns on that, on that little gulf there. That it's called the, 
uh, Ez, Ezion Geber was the first one in 926, the first nine. The other one was Eloth in 926 also. One is a port city at the head of the, of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is an arm of the Red Sea that comes up into the land. And the other one is a port on the north eastern arm of the Red Sea. So one's at the tip and one's just down on the right side of it. So that he has basically two places he can port out of, but he has to come down into the land of Edom to those two coastal cities, which he s secured for himself in order to do that. 